Hello, everybody. Good to see you. Hard to believe that um, this is the end of our first semester of this year's refuge. That happened fast. We've had 15 weeks. I was thinking earlier and talking with the leaders, it has been a lot of information for 15 weeks. Yes? Yes. And uh, so tonight is the conclusion of our first semester and our goal for the semester, which has been talking about a confident faith and the sufficiency of Scripture. And tonight, that is specifically our question and topic at hand. Is the Bible sufficient? So tonight's discussion, we are closing out the semester with an important topic um, as we prepare for the spring semester, which is on cultivating a biblical worldview. Tonight's question, is the Bible sufficient? has massive implications for how we live, how we act, how we speak, how we minister, which are all matters of our worldview. Indeed, if we are going to spend an entire semester in the spring on how a Christian should act and speak and respond to the pressing issues of culture today, and if we're going to argue that we should do so with the Bible as the ultimate authority, then the question of whether or not the Bible is sufficient for all things is of the utmost importance. Would you agree? Yes. So I want to explain first tonight what I mean by the question, is the Bible sufficient? What do I mean? For example, I think most of us here this evening would agree that the Bible is absolutely sufficient for things like salvation and revealing who God is and his character and the creation of the world and who Jesus is and what the purpose of the cross was and even heaven and eternal life. But many of us live in such a way that our daily lives and the things that Scripture doesn't necessarily speak directly to aren't subjective and submissive to the Scripture. And that is really the question. Not is the Bible sufficient for salvation and the character of God and the attributes of God and creation and things alike, but when it comes to your daily life, JJ, when it comes to you brushing your teeth and determining what deodorant to buy and how much money to spend on a sweater and where you're going to live and where you're going to go to school... How are we submissive to the Bible in these areas, and should we? Is the Bible sufficient for these things? So some questions that you may ask, for example, is, does the Bible speak specifically on dating? You hear a lot the term courting in church circles. Am I supposed to court, or am I supposed to date? And what does that look like, and how involved are the parents supposed to be? What about, does the scripture speak specifically about whether or not I should go to college? And if I should, where should I go to college? Because college has only been around for so long, and so thousands of years it didn't exist, right? Does the Bible speak specifically on what my budget should look like? How much I should put in savings? How much should my emergency fund be? Should it be six months of my income and, and actual living costs? Or is that too much? Is that, should that money instead be going to missions and things of the like? What about... Does the Bible speak specifically on the type of clothes that I should wear or buy? Does it speak about things like prison? Does it speak about what kind of house I should buy? Does it speak about what age I should get married? How about the context of the church? Does the Bible speak about how children's ministry should be run or if there should be children's ministry? What about youth ministry? What about celebrating Christmas? If the Bible is sufficient for all things then where do I turn to determine whether or not I should wear makeup? Because as the old story goes, there's the one pastor, of course, who says it is a sin for women to wear makeup. 
And then there's the pastor right down the street who says it's a sin for some women to not wear makeup. So, you know, you pick, you choose, right? But this is, these are debates that happen. What does the Bible say about whether or not I should attend prom? Or should I go see this movie? In other words, does everything I think, say, and do need to be submissive to Scripture? And if the answer is yes, how? What does that look like, right? What about the things that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on? Do I have Christian liberty? What does that even mean? And where is the line with Christian liberty? We discussed this question briefly during week 8 when we brought up the term sola scriptura. And I want to remind us of what the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says. I believe that it's helpful in defining and explaining what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient. It says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, this is good, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Christian prudence, the light of nature. We're going to talk about these things tonight. It goes on to say that the infallible rule of interpretation of the scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, we have the whole counsel of God in the word of God. Therefore, don't build doctrines and theologies on verses, but rather the entirety of the scripture. The entirety of what we know about God and about salvation and about man and about the fallen world. Again, I remind us tonight, like I did during the week of Sola Scriptura, that when we say the Bible is sufficient for all things, I do not mean that the Bible contains all knowledge. For example, you're not going to find Newton's laws of physics in the Bible, or an intro to music theory, or a breakdown of what the anatomy of the body does and looks like, right? You're not going to find that in the Bible. So there is knowledge outside of the Bible, but these are subjective and submissive to the Word of God. Nor is the Bible an an exhaustive catalog of all religious knowledge. For example, look at Jesus. We don't know what his life was like between childhood and his baptism. John gives us a glimpse and says, if he were to write all that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books that would be written. Now, what a statement. If all that Jesus did was recorded in books, the world could not contain the books that would be written. However, as we'll see tonight, this does not mean that anything is left out of the word that we do have that is crucial to salvation, life, ministry, or the character and attributes of God. Neither is the sufficiency of Scripture a rejection of every kind of tradition, but rather that all tradition be subject to the Word of God. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to begin 
by laying four foundational elements of the sufficiency of Scripture. And then we're going to look deeper at numerous passages of Scripture to discuss arguments and behaviors that tend to go against the sufficiency of Scripture and how the Bible responds to these objections. And then we're going to finish with how we can apply wisdom and discernment to things that don't express, we don't expressly see in the Bible. We're going to talk about how do you live on a daily basis knowing how much time you should spend studying, where you should be spending your money, what your dating life should look like, how much money you should spend on clothes, how much money you should save, and the things of the like. So we're going to begin with four foundations for the sufficiency of Scripture. And number one is this. God has created all things. This is the most important thing to know when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm going to give a lot of Scripture tonight. And what I'm going to ask you to do is really lock in to the verses that we'll be discussing. If you want, you can jot down. I will say where I'm getting all of them. It's going to be too much Scripture tonight to try to flip and keep up with me. So I can give you my notes later. I can email them to you. Or you can kind of jot them down and you can go be a Berean and make sure that I'm not making things up tonight later on in your own personal study. Because the word of Dave is not sufficient, but the word of God absolutely is. God has created all things. Colossians 1, you see this in verse 16 on, says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah 45, verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. And then one of the most important ones when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture, John chapter 1, verse 3 says this. All things were made through him, ready? And without him was not anything made that was made. Think about this. Without him was not anything made that was made. There is nothing living on this earth or in existence today that exists apart from God, is what John 1 is saying. Nothing. But God did not just create. He also created everything for a purpose. And this is important. He didn't just make things for us to just kind of figure out what meaning is and what purpose is. He's given everything purpose. We see the most important purpose for all things is found in Isaiah 43 verse 7, which says that we were all created for God's glory. Proverbs 16 4 says the Lord has made everything for its purpose. I'll say that again. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In other words, Nothing was made apart from him, and nothing is purposeless. Or to say it in the positive, God has created everything and given everything a specific purpose. But it's not just that God created all things and gave everything a purpose, because the Bible also teaches that nothing can stop his purposes. This is amazing. Isaiah 14, 27. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 
How about Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 10? I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying this, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or finally, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 17, which says, The Lord has done what He purposed. He's carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. The fact that God created all things and has given everything a purpose and His purpose cannot be thwarted is the most fundamental truth in regards to the sufficiency of Scripture. Because it means that nothing in this life has come in existence apart from God and without meaning. Therefore, why would we go to anything except the source, except the Creator, who knows the purpose for all things and has created all things or allowed all things, right? It's foolishness to go to any other source. We'll talk about this more in a second. So number one, God has created all, all things. Number two, God is ruler over all things. He is ruling Over all things. The main point here is that since everything has a specific purpose. God. Since his purposes will not be thwarted. Has determined what is right and what is wrong. God alone. Is ruling over all his creation. God alone has authority. Over everything because he alone created everything. So this is this is crucial. We've gone from God creating everything. Giving everything a purpose. His purpose will not be thwarted. He's determined what is right and wrong. And he alone has authority over all that he has created. This is what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended to the Father. And sent them on mission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Psalm 22 verse 8. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Psalm 66 verse 7. Says that God rules by his might Forever. Ephesians 1.21 says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above all rule, above all authority, above all power, and above all dominion. Do we dare say that this man has not given what is sufficient for all of life? I think not. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Colossians 1.17. He's before all things, in him all things hold Together, two more passages. Colossians 2, verse 10, says that Jesus is the head of all rule and he's the head of all authority. And then 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 11 through 12, says this, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and everything in earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. So what does this mean? It means that no one else gets to determine what is right and what is wrong or what has purpose and what doesn't. God has determined these things because he's created all things for his glory to accomplish his purposes. In other words, the clay does not get to say to the potter, why have you made me like this? You see the best example of this. Know this. You see the best example of this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 35. This comes from the mouth of a pagan king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? A pagan king pronounces this. So God is ruler over all things. Number three, God is sovereign over all things. And again, we're laying the groundwork, the foundational truths for why we say the Bible is sufficient. As the late R.C. Sproul last week, passed away, says, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. This means this. We are not deists. We do not believe that God exists, but that He is not directly involved in the world. Deism says there's a God, but He's not actively involved in His creation. That's foolishness. That goes against Scripture. Why? Since God has created all things and created them for a purpose, and since He's ruling and reigning, we must rest in His sovereignty that He is in control, even when the world rejects Him as creator, even when the world rejects Him as ruler, even when people live against their purpose and break God's rule, even when evil seems to be winning, we must understand that God is sovereign and He is in total control. As Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37 to 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? We see this in the greatest act of evil that has ever happened, Jesus' death. You see that God was totally sovereign in control. This came to pass, as Jesus says, in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Even Pilate was told that he only has authority because God has granted it to him. Pilate was simply being used to accomplish God's purposes. Psalm chapter 135, verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is one of the biggest rejections of the sufficiency of Scripture is that we want to do whatever we please. But the Bible says the Lord does whatever he pleases, but he gets to because he's creator, he's ruler, he's sovereign. Number four, God has spoken. We know that God is creator. We know that he's given everything a purpose. We know that he's ruler and ruling over all things, determining what is right and wrong. We know that he's actively involved in his creation and sovereign over all things that he has made simply because God has spoken and revealed this to us. Because God has revealed all of this to us, where else would we go but His Word to seek for answers, or seek for wisdom, or seek for decisions, or to find purpose, or to find meaning, or to determine what is right and wrong? How foolish it would be to seek these things anywhere else. You want to know why it would be foolish? The Bible says it's foolish. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But what does is, what is the greater scheme of Scripture show us about people who live in this way? This is what unbelievers do. Unbelievers go to other sources to find purpose and meaning. Unbelievers seek other counsel for wisdom for decisions. Unbelievers, people who are spiritually dead, as Romans 1 says, can know what is to be known about God because it is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, 
Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation. God is creator. So they are without excuse. Here's the problem. This is what unbelievers do. This is why they reject the sufficiency of Scripture. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this, this is it. Because they exchanged the truth, the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. God sent Jesus to establish even deeper his word. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then it gives a warning. Therefore, you ready believers? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is the foundation for the sufficiency of scripture. God's created all things. He's given it all purpose. He's ruling over all things to determine what is right and wrong. He's sovereign over all things in total control. And he has spoken to his creation to worship him and live for him and bring him glory in such a way that we are obedient to his commands as ruler and creator and the sovereign. This is the foundation for the sufficiency of scripture. And so now we turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Second Timothy, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. I want us to let this sink in. And remember, we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And by the way, Paul here is talking about the sufficiency of Scripture because where he ends... Verse 2, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. 
men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here's the transition Paul says to Timothy in his closing letter, the pastor, main pastor and elder in Ephesus. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Now, I want you to notice something. We're talking about the sufficiency of the word of God in all things. What is Paul saying here? You followed my teaching, I'm saying, my conduct, how I'm acting, my aim in life, which is my affections, as we talked about last week, my faith, salvation, my patience, this is a fruit of the Spirit, my love, fruit of the Spirit, steadfastness, fruit of the Spirit. So you've been, you, you have been able to see all of my life, all of it, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, here we are. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching. For reproof. For correction. And for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. All right, you'll notice, you'll notice the examples of how lost people are living today in verses 2 through 7. And this is a perfect demonstration, how they're living in verse 2 through 7. A perfect demonstration of a rebellion against God as the creator, a rebellion against God as the ruler, a rebellion against God as the sovereign, and a rebellion against the sacred writings, what he has spoken. Men are living and acting as if they determine purpose. As if they determine what is right and wrong. As if they are autonomous. This is the kingdom of self. On the contrast, Paul tells Timothy, as a believer and a shepherd, to not live like those, but to live according to what he has learned and believed. And this comes from the sacred writings. In other words, watch this. Paul says... The key to not living like the world is to live according to the Scripture. Paul goes on and tells them that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. They're spoken by God. They're God's revelation. It's God's revelation of His creation, of His rule, and of His sovereignty. And this word, Paul says, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. But Paul goes on and says that these things will allow for the man of God to be what? Complete. Equipped for every good work. In other words, Paul is saying this. Nothing is lacking. Nothing. Everything that you need to live for your creator. Everything you need to live for your ruler. Everything that you need to be under God's sovereign control is found in the scriptures. You need nothing else. And he uses his own life as an example in the transition verse. Think about this. 
Think about the danger. The moment you try to think, speak, or act outside of submission to the Word of God. If you can justify behavior in areas of your life outside the Word, then why are you trying to live in any area according to the Word? It's inconsistent. And this is the thing that I've said a number of times this whole semester. This is the point as believers of why we're going through this. This is the problem and the reason that we need to discuss cultivating a biblical worldview because Christians are inconsistent. We go to the sufficiency of scriptures for things like salvation and Christ and the Trinity and heaven and hell and sin and depravity and regeneration and the Holy Spirit and all of that. But when it comes to our kingdom of comfort and satisfaction and affections, what we do is we go, "Mm, the Bible's a little gray on these things. And we protect what we love. This is inconsistent. We had an apologetics workshop a few weeks ago and in a video that we watched, There's a conversation um, that the guy was saying that when you have a conversation with somebody about worldview or morals or rules or things of the like, they'll ask you to be neutral. They'll say, let's just have a conversation really quick. Step off of your foundation of a biblical worldview. Let's just meet in the middle and be neutral. And he says, there's two things you need to know about these people who are asking you to be neutral. Two things. Number one, they're not neutral. And number two, you shouldn't be. And here's why. There is no neutrality. The moment any area of your life steps outside of the box of biblical authority, you are now entering a worldview that has no foundation. You have no argument. You have no ability to justify your decision or anything that you are doing. Because here's the reality. You are either living for the glory of God in submission to His Word, or you are living in sin apart from His Word and you're seeking the kingdom of self. The sufficiency of God's Word is a huge deal. And it has ancient roots. Let me show you how. Adam and Eve living in perfect unity in relationship with each other, with creation, with God. There was no sin. God had created. God was the sovereign and God was ruler and he had determined what was right and wrong and he had commanded them. He had spoken and said that they must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, he warned them and say, the day that you do this, you shall surely die. So watch this. God created. God was ruling. God was sovereign. God had spoken. And then what happens? The enemy comes and says, did God actually say? The first attack and challenge for man was to get Adam and Eve to doubt the very words of God. Whether God's word is sufficient has been an issue since the garden. And through the help of the serpent, Adam and Eve committed what Peter warns about thousands of years later, that the ignorant and unstable twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And the result was that man was separated from God. Man was placed under his wrath. They had spiritually died, and they would surely physically die. James gives us the same warning. Lest we blame the ancient serpent. Because he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Sin began with Adam and Eve not submitting to God as creator, not submitting to God as ruler, not submitting to God as the sovereign, and therefore they chose not to rest in the sufficiency of his word. This is how sin happens today. The moment that we act, think, or desire, or speak apart from submission to God as creator, and God as ruler, and God as the sovereign, and we walk away from submission to his word, is the moment that we enter into sin. Overcoming sin at the heart is a respect for God as creator and ruler and sovereign and being submissive to his word. Now, with this being said, I want to discuss four behaviors and arguments or tendencies against the sufficiency of scripture and I want to answer them with what scripture says. All right? Number one, the reason that people... Don't rest in the sufficiency of Scripture. Ignorance. And I, I mean this um, very, in, in a simple-minded way. I, th- there's no judgment here at all. What I mean is, frankly, some people just simply don't know God's Word. They just don't know it. So they, they live in such a way that they think is pleasing to God, all the while they have no idea that the Bible goes beyond the elementary doctrines of salvation. They, they haven't read the Word of God. They don't know what Paul says about modesty or what Paul says about keeping in step with the Spirit. They don't know what the fruit of the Spirit is. They don't, know, they don't know that gossip and slander are spoken about in the Word of God. They don't know that the Bible talks about sexual immorality as much as it. They don't, they don't know. They just haven't read the Word. And there's a number of reasons why this could happen. It could be disobedient preaching that does not teach the whole counsel of God. It could be that this person doesn't have fellowship with the body it could be that this person is not being discipled someone teaching them think what is discipleship go make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe or obey all that i've commanded that's what discipleship is it could be that this person doesn't have a personal study or prayer life so here's what i challenge to every believer in here who is saved but is not submissive to the whole of scripture i want you now all to turn with me to second peter chapter one 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 3. For for those of you who are just ignorant, I don't mean that in a condescending way, are just ignorant of what the Bible says about everything, I want us to show a command that Peter gives that talks about us diving deep into the Word of God, which is sufficient for all things. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. Say all things. That pertain to what? Life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now pause. Frankly, this is where many believers stop and they just sit there and they go i've been saved this divine power is granted to me I, I i have escaped from the corruption of this world i've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness and they don't realize the implications of that statement and they live their life in a confidence okay that they're saved they believe in a god and they live life just according to now how they think they should they go to church on sunday morning what a, 
all of their theology is based on what the preacher is preaching on Sunday morning and what they're listening to on Christian radio throughout the week. They have no personal study. There's no accountability. There's no discipleship. Therefore, how do you expect them to know anything else? They live and dwell in verse 3 through verse 5 or 4. But Peter goes on. And so for you believers here tonight who that's you, this is what Peter says. For this reason, because this is now who you are, because you've been saved, because you are now partakers of the divine nature of God, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Now, let me ask you a question. How on earth can you do that apart from the word of God? How on earth can you do that apart from the spirit of God? And the spirit is the spirit of truth. And the spirit sanctifies us in truth. His word is truth. And here's the warning and encouragement. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Verse 3 through 4 is the knowledge. But making every effort to supplement your faith with all these things, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's what will keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge or unfruitful in the knowledge that you have. And here's why, the warning. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, warning, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we need to make every effort to supplement our faith and pursue these fruits that come from the word. And we must increase in these qualities so that we will be effective and fruitful and confirm our election and our calling. Don't be ignorant. The Bible warns against ignorance. Pursue the Lord and his word. Number two, something that fights against the sufficiency of scripture is pragmatism. This is the idea that if something works, we should do it. If something works, even if it's maybe not in scripture, don't stop it. It's working. Keep going. You might look at a church that's preaching the prosperity gospel and say to yourself, yeah, it's teaching some things that are not true, but look at how big the church is and how many people it's reaching. At least it's getting people interested in God. At least it's getting people to pray. Or you might look at even ministries in your own church and think, you know, this isn't really a biblical way to function or minister, but it seems to be working and gaining numbers and attention and people are happy, so let's just go with it. But what the reality is, is here is the ends don't always justify the means. And numbers and popularity is not evidence that the Spirit is moving. Numbers and popularity is not evidence that the Spirit is moving. Joseph Smith's religion started with six people in 1830, and today there are 12 million. Muhammad started with one, now there are a billion Muslims in the world. Jesus, however, 
had 5,000 men listening to him one day when he was performing a great miracle and gave them all food. The next day, there were only 12 men left. And to one of them, he said, you're the devil. Truth is never determined by popularity or numbers. When it comes to pragmatism, one of the things that we can hold on to the most is tradition. Tradition can be one of the biggest dangers. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 15. When Jesus asked the Pharisees why they break the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. He says to them, for the sake of, the, for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. But we do the same thing today. We sometimes have this arrogance thinking that we know how to reach the 21st century better than a 2,000 year old book. We minister and live often in ways that blur the lines of Christian liberty and what God has determined. And we do so so that people aren't offended. And we can gain a crowd or or a listening ear. or, Or we do this. We do it in such a way so that we can open the door, get our foot in the door. Because we have to get our foot in the door first, right? We become soft on things that might turn people away when we don't realize that if we attract them with a soft gospel, what they're responding to is a soft gospel. As James White says, what you win people with is what you win people to. It does not matter how many people we get to be religious or to like the church or to get goosebumps or have a spiritual experience if they don't see the glory of God and respond and repent to the true, offensive, God-centered gospel. Pragmatism cannot be what we go to. We have to go to the word of God. If we have a pragmatic approach, people will be responding to pragmatic gospel. And the moment that they go beyond their ignorance, like we talked in, in, in number one, and they start seeing the radical commands in a way that we're supposed to live in the world, they will say, mm, this, is not, this is not the God that I committed myself to. This, this, is, this is not the God that I want to pursue worship at all. A perfect example is the matter of divorce and remarrying. This is actually one of the topics that we'll most likely tackle in the new year. In Matthew 19, Pharisees come up to Jesus and test him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus responds and says this, Have you not read? Dot, dot, dot. In other words, Jesus tells them, The answer to your question is in Scripture. I've dealt with this. And he points them to Genesis, not to Moses yet. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes on and says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We are faced with these difficult things today in the church. What happens when a couple wants to come and they're divorced and they now want to get married to a different couple or a different person? And the Bible clearly says, if you do so and it wasn't for the biblical reasons, you are engaging in bringing them into adultery. What happens if it's a new couple who's been coming and interested in God, isn't saved yet, almost there, and all of a sudden I go, I'm sorry, I can't do that, here's why, I can be as tactful as I want. What happens? They may walk out that door and never come back. Should I have rather said okay, let's do that. And then just go, hmm. I hope later they're okay with the radical commands of the gospel. Let me ask you something. 
If someone's offended by something like being remarried, how do you think they're going to deal with the radical commands of how you're supposed to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What, what about the go and sell all your belongings and come after me? What about anyone who does not hate his father or mother is not really to be called my disciple? What, what about take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me? Have you noticed messages have gotten awfully fluffy so that we don't offend the lost person who might come on a Sunday morning when again I remind you Sunday morning isn't even for the lost person. We're faced with these difficult issues in the church every day. We soften what God has commanded and we soften what God has purposed for these things because they turn people away. But here's the reality. When we are more concerned about not turning people away, what we're doing is we're turning away from God. Because Paul says, as we talked about last week, you cannot serve people, seek the approval of people and God. If you do, you are not considered a bondservant, a servant of Christ. Number three, what will fight against the sufficiency of Scripture? Experience junkies. We did a whole semester on this in Colossians. We live in a world today, especially in the Christian world, where people are fascinated with the experience. Now, let me pause and say, Praise God for a biblical experience. Praise God for biblical emotion. Praise God for uh, being excited and seeing the move of the Spirit when it's in the context of Scripture and for the glory of God. Amen to these things. But I'm talking, I'm not talking that. I'm talking beyond. I'm talking selfish people who want to feel good, want to feel God, want to hear Him speak, have a wave of emotion, get some special revelation, see some act or miracle, simply so that they can have more faith when the reality is is they just want to live however they want to live and get a goosebump to make sure that they're still okay when it comes to eternity. Ironically, though, the, the moments that we see, the consistent moments that we see in the New Testament when it comes to these types of experiences, they're not... Outside of 1 Corinthians, they're not with how to do them and perform them and handle them in a biblical way. They're actually warnings. And these warnings are to warn people that when you seek these things or your faith is based on them, the warning and his assumption in much of Paul's letter is you may not be saved. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. But Paul preached what? Christ and Him crucified. So the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. How about Matthew 7? Remember verse 21? Many were prophesying in His name. Many were casting out demons. Many were doing many mighty works. And what does Jesus say? Get away from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Or probably the biggest warning to the experienced junkie is in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 says that these experienced junkies were enlightened They had tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Yet they proved to be cursed and their end was to be burned. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that this was a foundation of repentance from dead works. J.I. Packer says that the reason... We've turned to experiences because we lack certainty. It goes back to ignorance. He says this, Certainty about the great issues of Christian faith and conduct is lacking all along the line. He says the outside observer sees believers staggering from gimmick to gimmick and stunt to stunt 
like so many drunks in a fog, not knowing at all where we are or which way we should be going. He says, preaching is hazy, heads are muddled, hearts are, our hearts fret, doubts drain strength, and uncertainty paralyzes action. He says, this is unlike what you see in the first century Christians who in three centuries won the Roman world. <laughs> and those later Christians who had certainty, and by the way, their certainty was based on what? The word of God. Later Christians who pioneered the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, or the Puritan Awakening, or the Evangelical Revival, or the great missionary movement of the last century. He says, today we seek experience, but we lack certainty. We so desire to see the Spirit work today. Amen, I desire that. But sometimes we push to the point beyond what the Spirit is doing because there's no obedience, there's no genuine seeking, there's no desire to be actually sold out for the Spirit and submissive to God's Word that we often manipulate moments to get a response. And here's why. We want immediate results. Think of the person trying to lose weight. You cannot do it overnight. You must be disciplined for weeks or for months or years to form strong eating habits and disciplines and workouts. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm. Sanctification, remember, takes place your entire life. The moment from justification to glorification, you don't arrive. What happens is people are often guilty or they're full of shame in their sin. They want to change, but they have, they've been rebellious against God and they're living in open sin. So what they do is they go, I know i, I, I got to come back to God. So they pray, they read for a whole week, and then they complain because they see no change. It doesn't happen like that. It takes weeks and months and years to build a strong spiritual diet, to be renewed in your mind, to desire new things, to build disciplines, to see progress and evidence of the Spirit. But we want it now, which is why we crave experiences, and which is why we lack certainty. There's no discipline. There's no diligence. We must rest in the sufficiency of Scripture we must look at passages like Psalm 1. And notice that the man is blessed in Psalm 1 because he's like a tree that is planted by streams of water. You know how long it takes to plant and grow a tree? Years. And it says that this man yields its fruit in its season. There's patience involved here. The wicked are not so, Psalm 1 says. They're like chaff. That the wind drives away. This is the experience junkie that Paul warns us against in Ephesians 4. When he says, no longer be like a child which is tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. What we looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 2 through 7. These are people who are just obsessed with self. And this leads us to number 4. And probably the biggest against sufficiency of scripture. And that is building the kingdom of self. This is the strongest one. And by the way, I would argue for most people here tonight, most people here tonight aren't ignorant to what the Bible teaches. Most people tonight would say, yeah, pragmatic approach is not how we should live or minister. Most people here tonight would say, yeah, I desire more than experience. I want to have faith and I want to have clarity and I want to pursue the deep truths. And so you might say, Dave, this is great. We've talked about the sovereignty of God, the rule of God, God being a creator, a speaking. I'm, I'm good. What, what's for me tonight? This is for you tonight. 
Because when it comes to the regular daily parts of your lives where you struggle with the sufficiency of Scripture, what happens is Rudy wants to build up the kingdom of Rudy in his heart. He's prone to wander. I'm not calling him out because I know the secrets of his closet. I'm calling him out because he's a man. A man in the image of God who has fallen and been separated from God because he was born into sin. He's hostile to God in his nature. If he doesn't keep in step with the Spirit, he will give in to the desires of the flesh, which means where Rudy and everybody else in this room tonight struggles most with the sufficiency of Scripture is that you want to build the kingdom of self. We tend to move away from the sufficiency of Scripture when Scripture speaks out against our desires or our comforts. In other words, if we want something, all we need to do is this. And we mute the Scripture. And we can act like we don't know. And we can justify ourselves because we worship a God who is so, to speak, invisible. Although He's not. Right? But He's invisible to the eye. And so we think we get away with things. And don't judge me. I, and we, we justify it with other people. But this is the result of the rich man who walked away from Jesus sad in Luke because he had many possessions. He wanted to build the kingdom of self. Or the rich man later in Luke who wanted someone to go warn his family thinking that a miraculous sign of someone raising from the dead would save them. But the response was that they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word. And if that isn't sufficient, neither will they believe if someone raises from the dead. The kingdom of self was the problem with the rich man who built bigger barns and was drinking and was merry. And the Lord called him a fool for that night his very soul was required of him. This is the heart of Paul's teaching. This is why Paul says, we're jars of clay. We're earthly tents. Cling to the life to come. To live as Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I count everything else as loss. Now, think about this from a very practical standpoint. Let's get really personal. What does this mean for you? The Bible says that you should be pure, men. But you give in to pornography. Or you give in to sex outside of wedlock. Why? Not because the Bible is silent on it. It's not because you don't believe and submit to other portions of Scripture. But it's because you want to be satisfied right now. So what happens is you reject God as the creator of sex. You reject His rule and commands of sex. You reject His sovereignty and declare yourself to be autonomous. And then you reject His word, which gives biblical parameters for the beauty of sex so that you can give in to the kingdom of self. This is not just with sex. It's with money. It's with lying. It's with gossiping. It's with entertainment. It's with marriage. It's with ministry or any other time that we act outside of Scripture. The reality is this. We want to be creator. We want to be ruler. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to determine purpose. We want to be autonomous. I want to be the sovereign. My will be done. My kingdom come. And this is where our thoughts and our intentions come into play. We reject the word on a daily basis, not because it's silent about things. Don't be naive. Don't lie to yourself. You're not submitting to Scripture because you have affections that you want to satisfy. This is what Hebrews 4.12 says, God knows. The Word of God, this 2,000-year-old book, and earlier, 
says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's where we end and come to our practical application. So you may say, okay, Dave, I see that. I see that I oftentimes reject the sufficiency of Scripture with how I want to spend my money or how I dress, right, what kind of clothes I wear or where I want to live or what kind of job I want to have or what kind of relationships or entertainment or whether or not I wear makeup. I'm being kind of joking there, right? But the reality is is everything in our life should be submissive. So you may say, so what do I do? Because the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on school. And, and by the way, what goes against the sufficiency of Scripture is not that you should do this. God, where am I supposed to go to school? 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 Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Virginia is the state for lovers. Liberty universities in Virginia. God, you want me to go to Liberty! Right? That is not what I'm talking about. That is not what I'm talking about. So what is a serious, practical application of how you can be submissive to the Word of God? And by the way, I want to remind everyone who may be convicted, like me, over anything that we just said, the Gospel teaches that we can run to the cross and be forgiven for all of those things. And His grace is sufficient for all of our sin, all of our weaknesses. And He has promised that He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. I will be more sanctified a year from now than I am today because God does not fail. So that's the great hope of the Gospel. Amen to that. I'm confident there are other arguments and reasons, behaviors. But for the sake of our time, I want to close now with seven applications. I'm just going to give them. Seven applications of how you on a daily basis in the minute details of your life and the things that are not exactly black and white in Scripture, how you can be submissive and intentional about the sufficiency of Scripture. Number one, read and study the Word. Don't, do not in your head allow yourself to go, I just... Get to the part that makes me go, that's what I'm missing. Because if you're thinking that, this is probably what you're missing. Read and study the Word of God. It is if we're talking about if we're talking about how to submit to the sufficiency of Scripture of all things, why would we dare look for any practical application apart from reading and studying the Word of God? Right? That's the most fundamental, foundational thing that you can do. If you want to know how your life is supposed to be submissive to Scripture, read the whole Bible. <laughs> Find out what it says about how you want to live your life. It's really that simple. First Peter 2.2 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up into salvation. Be like the psalmist in Psalm 1, meditating day and night. Be like Paul, what says in Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 10. Go read about the law of the Lord, how it's perfect. It revives the soul. It's the, testi- the testimony is short. It makes wise the simple. It makes the heart right. Rejoice in the heart. That the commandments are pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're more to be desired than gold. Fine gold, sweeter than honey and droppings of the honeycomb. Or go to Psalm 119 and just read it over and over and over and over. Think of Psalm 119, verse 105. You want to know what to do in your life, how you ought to live? 
Areas that are muddy, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. When I preached on Psalm 119, what I said about this, this verse is think about this. A lamp to my feet, it reveals where I'm standing. All the nastiness maybe, all the things wrong, it reveals where I am right now. It sheds light on right now, and then it's a light to my path. It reveals where I need to go. That's what the word of God does. So read instead of the word. Number two, be intentional throughout your day. Be intentional. Act, thought, speaking word, commitment. Be intentional. A great passage to remember in this is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses nails it. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 through 8. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. That pretty much covers all of light. In other words, be intentional and have reminders everywhere of the commands of the Lord. Paul says something similar in a different way a couple thousand years later in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully how you walk. Redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. I gave out a book to all of our leaders. I highly recommend it to everybody in here. If you're looking for a final Christmas gift for yourself or your spouse or a friend or your dad or anybody who's addicted to a phone... Get the, get the book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Ranke. One of the most convicting parts of this book was in the last chapter, the 12th way, and it talked about the issue of time, how our phone affects kind of our time. And he asked the question, do we really, do we really um, have the freedom to scroll and waste countless hours on things like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? And the argument he says in Scripture is no. He says this, we don't have time to kill, we have time to redeem. That was one of the most crucial things I heard in the whole book. No, no but you should never say, oh yeah, sure, I've got some time to kill. I get the, the gist. It might not always be an evil notion in your heart, but what we've been given is time to redeem. Make the best use of your time. Be intentional throughout your day. Number three, fight against your sin with joyful obedience. You want to submit to the sufficiency of Scripture? Sin is rejecting that. Therefore, what you should be doing is fighting against your sin. Because you remember the garden. It was a self-kingdom rejecting the word of God. Remember, Jesus, the second Adam, overcame the devil who attacked Jesus in the same way he attacked Adam. But God, the God-man, Jesus, overcame the devil by rightly using the word of God and dwelling in the sufficiency of the scripture. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Fight against your sin with joyful obedience. Number four. If you don't know what to do. Err on the side of caution. Or as most dads always say. When in doubt, go without. Right? When in doubt, go without. If you're unsure, it's better to refrain. 
Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31 with something as simple as eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it what? Do it all for the glory of God. When you're faced with little things and you're unsure, remember Romans 14.23, anything apart from faith is sin. Remember, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Err on the side of caution if you're not sure. Dwell in the sufficiency of God's scripture. Number five, seek godly counsel. We have lost a respect for the older generations. We think that they're out of touch with the world today. They don't know technology. They don't know what it's like. It's different being a teenager today than it was 60 years ago. So we just kind of blow them off as they don't know anything. Or we may, especially with our parents, we see their faults better than anybody else. So we think that they don't have anything good to say about our faults, right? It's kind of like, why are you calling out the little thing in my eye when you got a log in your own? Right, Zach? Right? Come on, Rudy. Come on, man. You know what I'm saying? The reality is... God has given these people godly wisdom through their own mistakes and successes. We should humbly approach them and cling to them. Titus chapter 2 talks greatly about this. God has given you pastors, leaders, parents, biblical mentors to teach you, to guide you. Their wisdom will always be subordinate to Scripture. It must be. But we must consider how to stir up one another to good works. Not neglecting to meet together but encouraging one another. And all the more days, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Seek counsel. If you don't know, seek counsel. Number six, our final two. It's a big one. Watch for wolves. Watch for wolves. Not all counsel is godly counsel. Not all preaching is godly preaching. Not all conviction is Holy Spirit conviction. Watch for wolves. Colossians 2, 6-8, Paul gives us a great roadmap here. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. And by the way, the context here is Paul is dealing with Gnostics. Extra revelation, special experiences. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he says this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the sufficiency of man or the sufficiency of Scripture if I've ever seen it in the Bible. Paul gives this warning to Second Timothy or to Paul and Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter four, verse two through five. He says, "Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching." A lot of imagery that we see in Second Peter or Second Timothy chapter three. For the time is coming, Paul says, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The kingdom of self. I just broke this. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Watch for wolves. And by the way, you can only know a wolf if you know the word. Number seven, and finally, pray without ceasing. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. Paul commands us in Romans chapter 12, be constant in prayer. You see it in Philippians, pray without ceasing. James chapter 1, verse 5 through 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, but let him ask in what? Faith. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We've been, given, we've been given everything that we need in the Word of God for salvation, for ministry, and for life. 2 Corinthians 9.8. This is our closing verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, in all times, you may abound in every good work. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. So remember, tonight, sufficiency of Scripture. God has created everything. Nothing exists that was not created. God's given everything a purpose to glorify Him namely. He is the ruler. He alone determines what is right and wrong. He is active in His creation and sovereign over every molecule, over all good and all evil. And He's working all things out according to His glorious plan. And he has revealed this in his word. Therefore, we as his creation humble ourselves and submit ourselves to his word. We receive our purpose through him. We submit to his rule and his sovereignty. We walk by faith according to his word, keeping in step with the spirit so that we may not gratify the desires of the flesh, all the while seeking the kingdom of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, not ours. 15 weeks, a lot of information. We begin January 9th with cultivating a biblical worldview. We will begin that night with basically an apologetics approach of, based on what we've talked about this semester, how we actually execute a biblical worldview in our conversation, in our study, in our practice, etc. And then beginning the 16th, you're going to hear from Rudy for the first time, and we're going to begin tackling tough topics every single week about how a Christian ought to think about things like money and race and homosexuality and adoption and abortion and war and all the hot topic issues of today. Here's the reality, though. We didn't jump into this in August because we needed to lay a groundwork. We need to lay a conviction and a foundation based on the Word of God that gives us reason to act and live in such a way and why we can be a light in the world. And when people press up against us for our biblical worldview, we can now have a foundation and give a reason for the hope that is in us and be educated and not be ignorant, right? And be aware that we're prone to wander and build a kingdom of self. So what I'm going to do, because frankly, there's probably many of you here tonight who haven't been here for the entire semester. There's going to be people who come next semester who have not been here maybe at all this semester. So in the next week, Lord willing, I'm going to record a video, 45 minutes to an hour, so I'm going to try to keep myself to. And it's going to give the overview, the highlights of every single week this year, the main points. It's going to hit everything. These are the main points of the semester, preparing and laying the groundwork for the new semester. Meanwhile, if people come in and they're like, what do you base this on? They can watch the highlight video. If they're intrigued by more information, they can go. Every single one of our messages is online on our website. And I have every single transcript from every single message and all of my resources available for anybody who may want any of that. All right? So we want to be diligent in providing 
you guys with all kinds of education and information. We are going to pick up small groups again back in the new year because they're going to be heavy topics each week. I don't expect that we'll all agree, but I do expect and hope that now that we've laid a foundation that we can all agree that we believe the Bible should be the authority in all of these things. What we're going to do tonight as we close this semester and take a break for two weeks is we're going to sing a song called Build, Build My Life. And um, the, the, the bridge says, I will build my life upon your word. It is a firm foundation. And the chorus is really wanting to go out on mission based on these types of things. So what I'm going to ask you to do again as we close is I want you to bow your heads. I want you guys to reflect on this semester. I want you to pray and ask God that he would uh, reveal to you any areas of your life that you're not submitting to the scripture as a whole. Pray over those things. Ask God to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome these things by His grace, to walk and keep a step of the Spirit. And then we're going to respond with this song this evening as we close the semester.